This episode contains graphic accounts of domestic and sexual violence, violence against women in particular, and language that is not suitable for listeners under 18 years of age. Other themes that you may hear in the following episode deal with suicide and addiction. Please use caution when listening. I've been an outlaw since I was three years old. When I say that, I don't say it, uh, you know, it, it, I, I'm not like today's, uh, I'm not a criminal, you know. I was a, well, as the U.S. attorney called me a pecuniary threat to the society. And, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I paid the price. And after all of it said and done, after all the years that I had to serve, they made it misdemeanor. In this episode, we go on a quest through Jim's childhood and his hometown to see if we can learn anything from his somewhat murky childhood. We want to understand what turns a man into a prolific, violent abuser, and what, if anything, can stop him. The voice you just heard is that of Jim Lumen Sr., Jim's dad. Jim Lumen's dad had a long and colorful criminal history, and he wasn't afraid to share some of that with us. I'm Leslie Briggs. And I'm Colleen McCarty. And this is Panic Button, Operation Wildfire. This is episode two, Mafia Meat. So last week, we introduced you to a man who we would call a serial abuser. He's been violent towards women since the earliest reports that we could find in court records about him from the early 1990s. Jim Lumen has 12 known domestic violence victims, has a particular method of identifying his victims, seducing them into isolation and control. But how did he get that way? I think to understand Jim, you've got to understand where he's from. Jim's from a really small town in Oklahoma called Cleveland, which is not to be confused with Cleveland, Ohio, and also not to be confused with Cleveland County. Cleveland, the town in Oklahoma, has a population of about 3,282 people. The median income for a household, and this was really surprising to me when I looked it up, is about $28,861. And a median income for a family is $36,585. Males had a median income of $30,000.99. Females had a median income of $19,122. That feels like a huge pay gap. Not only is it a pay gap, but that is extremely impoverished. Those people. Right. Those are under statewide. Statewide median is like 42, I think, for a family. Yeah. And so you can see that, you know, living in Cleveland has a very low cost of living, but also there's a very low ability to earn any type of discretionary income. You're going to see a lot of financially desperate people making families with other people around them because there's just no other way to like survive. Yeah, I can't. I mean, $19,000 a year is, is hard. I mean, that's hard to imagine for me. Look, man, look. Not that I'm a millionaire. <laughs> We're public interest lawyers, We're dude. public interest lawyers. But, like, that is, that's truly hard to imagine. Yeah, it's shocking. So, like most towns in Oklahoma, Cleveland was founded in the late 1800s as a trading post between white settlers and the Osage people. And it is an extremely small and close-knit community in a really small county called Pawnee. Leslie and I spent an afternoon in Cleveland trying to learn what the community is like from the people who live there. You want a booth? Yeah. Cleveland is like, it just seems like it's America. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just a, it's a small, it's a 
regular old small town, right? No. No? Yeah, like all small towns, they all have their secrets, and they're all crooked. You think so? Oh, yeah. Really? Well, there's bodies over there in Charlton Jennings area. Really? Where is buried that? in their yard forever, and then just a couple of years ago, like 10, 20 years, they had them buried in. <laughs> That was our waitress at the Hickory House, one of just a handful of restaurants in Cleveland. She was telling us about a separate crime involving the discovery of buried bodies in a nearby town. She didn't want to elaborate about what she thought was crooked or what other secrets that Cleveland has. But she wasn't the only person we spoke to who felt that the town had things to hide. We'll hear more about that later. Our trip to Cleveland was unusual, largely because we got the sense that even though the community is close-knit and outsiders are regarded with suspicion, the insular nature of the community doesn't always lead to justice or accountability when someone causes harm. So, like, okay, Cleveland is like, what, there's like 4,000 people in Cleveland? Yeah, roughly, yeah, maybe. I mean, so does everybody know everybody's fucking business all the time? Yes. All the time. All the time. All the time. Pretty much, yeah. No secret. No, yeah, no secret. Yeah, if you don't know it, you make it up. <laughs> I got away with the last time I had syphilis, but nobody heard about it. Oh, son of a bitch, can we turn this off? <laughs> Still going. <laughs> Keep it in mind. Okay, good and bad. Everybody. I mean, it's good and bad. And a lot of times it may be in the newspaper. You know, you know. Yeah. Why is it good and bad though? Because if you need help, a lot of people already know. Right, yeah, a lot of people know you. But it's also bad because if you you don't like your business being out there, too bad. Everybody's pretty much out there. I mean, everybody knows us, and it's like, I mean, we just come call away if we needed something, we just had 10 people on our side. Is that what it's kind of like? Like, community. I don't know. You hear about, like, okay, we're from Tulsa, and it's not the biggest city, but, like, I barely know my neighbors. That's why y'all know, right? You know, and like if I was in like, I know all my neighbors personally. See, this is my point. And so you could call somebody if you needed help. Right. I don't know that I could do that. Yeah. But that's the that's that's like the that's the difference between like a place like Tulsa and a place like Cleveland, where maybe your business is out there, but you at least know your neighbors. Yeah, really. Interesting. Yeah. This town is about 30 minutes outside of Tulsa, which is Oklahoma's second largest city, and it has almost half a million people. So even though it's pretty far out in the country, it's really close to a fairly large urban center. And one of the most famous residents of Pawnee County was Pawnee Bill. He starred in the Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show back in the turn of the century times, and he ended up creating his own Wild West show called Pawnee Bill's Wild West Show, and it's still reenacted in Pawnee every year at Pawnee Bill's Ranch. Ropers and Indians from across the western frontiers. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, are you ready for a real Wild West Show? That shit's a hell of a show, I have to say. You've been to this. I was like 12, so I don't actually remember it. The ranch is said to be haunted by the ghosts of Pawnee Bill and his wife. And the people have also seen the spirit of their son near the water tower where he tragically hanged himself near the ranch. More recently, Cleveland has grown into the big city, as one attorney who worked in Pawnee County described it. It's home to the only remaining bar in the county, the Cleveland Lounge. They serve cans of beer, take cash only, 
and you can still smoke cigarettes inside. Leslie and I had a couple of beers at the Cleveland Lounge to see if anyone would talk to us about what this little town with a big history is like today, or at least what it was like when Jim was growing up. Everybody. Fucking bad influence. Okay, tell me about 1990. We're in Cleveland. What's it like here? I got a pee. Oh no! He got nervous. 1990 in Cleveland was pretty, pretty freaking awesome. That's Gary. He grew up in Cleveland in the 1980s and 90s and went to high school with Jim and Kristen. He spoke very fondly of his high school days in Cleveland. I mean, you had a country store, a little game room right on the other end of town, and there was a lot of kids. That's where we showed up to go look for parties. You used to be able to sit in Palace Drug parking lot and drink beer. Remember that? (laughs) The party was always at Osage. Yeah, and then you'd end up in Osage. That's why I live in Osage. Because it's like it's, near, it's near a bunch of bodies of water, right? You would think people right. would like come out. No, it's, actually, it's, it's actually it's actually only near one body of water. It just wrapped around. The oh, whole the, is it the Arkansas? <laughs> Arkansas River. Yeah, yeah. And Keystone. Keystone Lake just Keystone. wrapped around. But Osage Osage Point back then was a pool. They had a bunch of water there, and you can go out and swim. You can go fish. You can go do at docks. Had yeah. Hit Boston Pool Road. You okay. go out there and do some partying. There's there the Y out there. You can go partying out there. Wait, and, what happens on Boston Pool Road? Well, uh, well you can look up. Uh, there's a musician named Brent Giddens. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Uh-uh. He actually has a song about Boston, Boston Pool Road. And it, it, got, he got he pretty much nails it in the song. Right. Yeah. And then you got you got a guy that he he wrote a song. If you look up Wink Bertram, he wrote a Cleveland Summer Night. Yeah, a lot of backroading parties. Backroading. You'd start out you start out cruising Main Street, and then you'd end up down at the country store, which is where the Mexican restaurant is down there. But so are you like okay? Are you just like driving and drinking beer the whole time, and the cops aren't doing anything? You used to be able to sit there in Palace Drug Parking Lot. You used to be able to sit there and. This was back in the early 90s, and if you had beer, as long as you just didn't show it, they'd pull up, you hide your beer. <laughs> they'd play, and if you wasn't being a dickhead or anything, yeah. they'd just, all right, you know, I'll go. And if you was at the country store, they'd pull in, and we'd always plan it out when the cops would pull in and check everybody at the country store. We'd always have like five people sitting up here, and they'd go check them out, and then we'd have like five, six people pull in and block all the cops in. And, Everybody that had beers and shit, we'd all head out either there or Jody Bow Road. There's all partying down Jody Bow Road uh, called bullpens. Go down to bullpens off Jody Bow Road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty awesome around here back in the 90s. Man, so what happened? Like, I mean. Everybody's got a fucking phone and they want to sit there and do this all uh, goddamn day long. They don't want to. They want to sit in their basements and drink beer or not drink beer. They just play video games. Play Nintendo. Yeah. Play Nintendo, play fucking War of World or some shit. Don't play Nintendo, you son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Mario. (laughs) You could imagine that, like, there's not a ton to do. No. And you're probably getting into trouble. I mean, there's not much else to do but get into trouble, I think. And I think even people in Tulsa feel that way, so I can't imagine... How people in, in Pawnee County feel when they're growing up and there's yeah. nothing to do. Right. So it's in this environment that Jim was born in Cleveland, Oklahoma in 1975 to Jim Lumen Sr. and Patsy Lumen, whose maiden name was O'Donnell. 
Jim was the youngest of two, and his sister was 12 years older than him. By some accounts, Jim had a normal childhood. I, I know Jim. When we came to the uh, United States, like in 1980, their family was like wonderful uh, to us. You know, like they accepted us, and, and we played. You know, like all throughout the childhood years, we even were on the same soccer team. He had a motorcycle that he 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 kind of um, let me ride in the back. You know, time to time. That's Tutu. When he was seven. His family immigrated to the United States and settled in Cleveland, Oklahoma. He remembers Jim's family as kind and welcoming to him, despite being an outsider in a place that might not always welcome people who are different. One of Jim's other classmates growing up was a woman named Kristen. She grew up with Jim in Cleveland, and eventually, many years later, Jim would smash Kristen's face into his mother's gravel driveway during a harrowing assault in 2014. We'll hear more about that in a later episode. Here's Kristen. First memory of him is probably at the laundromat as a child. Maybe I'm five years old or so, and my mom takes the laundry there. And his grandmother and grandfather owned the laundromat, so he was there playing. And I, I don't remember much other than, you know, just playing chase and, and was showing me how he stole all the Coke out of the Coke bottles that were in the, the glass bottles that were there. He popped off all the lids and drank all the Coke out or whatever. But So that's like first memory. And then, of course, we went to... Cleveland schools together, and we were both in the same graduating class of 92. Everybody knew who he was because he would, you know, he dressed differently. I remember him getting in trouble because he wouldn't stop driving a car to school. He didn't have a license to drive, so they would tell him or, you know, give him, suspend him or whatever trouble you get into for continuing to drive to school when you don't have a license. And it was like a red Fiero, if I'm saying, like a little tiny red car. And uh, mine, well, you guys don't know, but the high school and his mother's house is like, you could walk there. It's like a quarter of a mile. But he would drive that car up there and get in trouble. I mean, he's like obviously just trying to get in trouble, you know, right? I think people knew him for that, his style and, you know, getting in trouble. Everyone seems to know that Jim is trouble. And very few people wanted to comment on it directly. So you know Jim. Jim who? Jim I don't want to say that on... <laughs> that includes Jim Sr. Well, if I if I lend credence to three or four of them there, two or three or four, and, which I've, I've never talked to them other than Marcy, now his ex-wife. Even though Jim Sr. didn't want to comment on the allegations about Jim's abuse, he was willing to speak with me about his own criminal past. The first arrest we could find on Jim Sr., was from 1969 in Okmulgee County. Because I had to I <laughs> escape from the Okmulgee County Jail over the. I went first went uh, to prison for, or I was sentenced, convicted of uh, uh, six bags of pecan nuts in Okmulgee County. After escaping the Okmulgee County Jail, Jim Senior went on the run to California, where he says he went to law school at Pepperdine for two years under an assumed name. Yeah, when I quit, you know, no offense to you, I, I, I went to law school myself, but I dropped out when I seen an error of my waist. Went to Pepperdine, Pepperdine Law School uh, in uh, California. Under a, uh, believe it or not, it was under an assumed name, because I had to. I, Are you willing to tell me what aliases you used? 
I can tell you what I remember. Girl, I had to change my aliases about every month. I had to fire up the Xerox machine and uh, start in the whiteout and start making me a new birth certificate, go get a new driver's license. After John or Joe or George or whatever the hell I was using. <laughs> well, what, what was the one you used in law school? That one's kind of the most interesting. Do you remember? That was an individual that is, as far as I know, is still practicing law. But he took credit for it. He took credit, and I started it, and he finished it. Wow. And that's why, you know, I'm not going to expose him. Eventually, Jim Sr. came back to Oklahoma and pled guilty to the pecan case crime in 1971. It takes a couple of years. We get to 1971, and Jim Sr. pleads guilty to the crime of grand larceny. Now, because we don't have the case file on this, all we had are handwritten court minutes. They actually went and pulled like what I imagine to be like a very dusty, huge book of like handwritten court minutes from the 60s and like sent us pictures of the pages where this case wow. was. They said they didn't have the case file, but they could give us the minutes. And so in the minutes, it says that he pleads guilty in 1971. This charge is actually later vacated, but we don't have like the full appeal history. We don't know why. He's able to, on a, a plea of guilty, gets it vacated. And I would like for you, as a resident criminal justice expert, to explain why it's bananas to see a guilty plea vacated. I mean, I can't tell you like the history of like when guilty pleas started to become pretty much impossible to get out of. It could have been after this. But right now, if you make a guilty plea, it is essentially ironclad. I mean, if you admit to the court that you are knowingly and understandingly pleading guilty and you list out everything that you did, which is what you have to do when you plead guilty, now you're on the record forever having said that you did the thing. And so it's really impossible to back that up unless you can prove that you didn't know what you were saying, that you didn't understand like it's a translation issue. I've seen that happen where they've undone a guilty plea or withdrawn a guilty plea for that. But otherwise, a guilty plea is pretty much signed, sealed, delivered, you're done. So that, that is not the case in, in this 1969 case. It's, ultimately, it's vacated. We'll, we're never going to know why because the court file is gone, but that's what's in the minutes. I have a suspicion that I don't know if you want to put in the record or not. Hit me. But that he was cooperating with law enforcement. This criminal history, and I've said this to you before, this type of criminal history smacks of somebody that cooperates with law enforcement but he gets found guilty so many times though and then it gets undone and then it gets undone and then it gets undone (laughs) only twice well three times okay (laughs) just three times (laughs) i know okay so let's keep going so also in 71 jim senior pleads guilty in a federal court so that oak mulgee county case was in state court in 71 he also pleads guilty in a federal court to concealing a stolen motor vehicle which had moved in interstate commerce and transporting a stolen motor vehicle in interstate commerce. Meanwhile, I got a federal uh, conviction for uh, test driving a Dodge to new Dodge Charger from Donnie's Simmons there on East 11th Street. I just decided to keep it for a while. I went to Leavenworth for that, but they meanwhile had filed, uh, that was while I was out on state from Okmoggy County. But meanwhile, they filed on the charger and uh, got a conviction. It's interesting because 21 years later, in 1992, he's going to try to vacate that sentence despite only receiving two years for each charge. So, like, he had completely finished. And we're going to, I'm going to, you're going to, I'm going to tell you why. He, but he had, wait, wait, wait. 
Tell me. This is from 71. He got two two-year sentences that probably ran concurrently. That means running together. So he served maybe two years on this. Yeah. And then in 1992. Yes. He goes back and tries to vacate something that he's finished serving 20 years ago. Well, yeah. what? Yeah. We're going to talk about why. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you exactly what he's doing when I get to the end of this whole thing. Okay, keep going. Okay, so in 1975, that's the year that Jim Jr. was born, he also pleads guilty again in federal court. Uh, I couldn't tell you what for. The only reason I found this case was there was an effort to vacate it at an appellate court, and I found the opinion denying that. But in that opinion, they don't tell me what the 1975 case was because he's appealing it in the 90s again. So we're talking about like 20 years later, this guy's coming back and trying to like appeal sentences that he's already done the time on. Well, it's like he's finally just like, what? I'm just going to guess. Okay. okay what What's I think guess? is happening. He's incarcerated in the 90s and now he's a jailhouse lawyer and he has time to go back and learn post-conviction procedure <laughs> and how to appeal for all these things. <laughs> because before he was already out. So what the fuck did he care right. to get everything vacated? But now <laughs> he's bored as hell and sitting inside a cell in a DOC prison in 1990 with no air conditioning. And he's I'll, learning the law. I'll tell you, you're like mostly true on that. Okay, we're gonna, we're going to get to, there's a more substantive reason why he's doing it. Okay. But in 1979, he actually has a jury trial and is found guilty for knowingly concealing stolen property in Washington County, Oklahoma. So that's back in state court. And that jury gives him five years in DOC. But in 1983, he files for post-conviction relief with the help of an attorney. And the DA agrees that he should be resentenced to 18 months Credit for time served. So on the day of that hearing, he was a free man. This is crazy. So there was, I think, an intervening change in the law. Okay, I couldn't okay. I couldn't figure it out. But I was like, what? Are you serious? The, the DA is just going to agree to give him a lesser sentence? But I would also say that the time period is important here. Like, we really didn't get tough on crime, in quotes, until, like, the mid-90s. And DA's... While they were really hard on violent crime back then and like everybody was getting life and everybody was getting the death penalty on low level property crimes, pretty much everybody was just running around doing crazy shit. <laughs> well, I mean, this guy was like doing crimes. <laughs> like, <laughs> doing crimes. In the 70s and 80s, this guy was doing crimes. And like the thing. So again, so he gets post conviction relief and, and in the 90s again goes back to try to vacate his sentence of that was he was resentenced to 18 months. The court denies his request. And I want to read this because it's just like one of the funniest things I've ever seen a court write into their order. But this this judge who denies his request to like change his sentence a second time, because again, he got five years from the jury, resentenced to 18 months several years later, and then goes back and tries to get it completely undone in the 90s. It's like it's like getting a strike and then trying to bull a strike again. You know, like yeah. you just, you already Before won. the pins are reset. Yes. It's like <laughs> you got a strike, but then you just launch another ball <laughs> down the line. But so the court says in her order, what defendant with a brain would object to a reduction in sentence from the original five years to serve in the penitentiary to 18 months credit for time served Balance, if any, suspended with full knowledge that he is a free person following the December 2nd, 1983 hearing. The thing about this is that Jim Sr. had a plan much bigger than whether he was served a just sentence in the 1979 case, which he was attempting to overturn in 1983. 
Throughout the 1970s, Jim Sr. was charged with a crime every few years in both state and federal court. Yeah, well, I'll put it this way. When, they, when I would come up for a pro, they could call it a, a pro all they wanted to. I called it a furlough because I knew that I was going to be a warrant in 30 days. Jim Sr.'s something of a prolific criminal. Throughout the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, when Jim Jr. is just a kid and having his teen years, Jim Sr. is charged and convicted numerous times for pretty high-stakes property crimes. Was it, I mean, were you, were you around much when the kids were growing up there in Cleveland, or were you, you know, mostly away? No. Regretfully, I was not. Yeah. Because, hell, they knew, they knew that address in Cleveland, and I couldn't go there. <laughs> oh, wow, it's kind of on the run. Yeah. Oh, so if they if they didn't have me, they was looking for me. I want to quickly just give a shout out to the court clerks in some of these like smaller counties and in Tulsa County. And frankly, like Tulsa County will email me anything. It's wonderful. Not every county is like that, but for lots of these cases, because we were going back all the way to 1969 and the 1970s. I mean, some of these folks were like crawling into the attics of the courthouse to find documents for us. So shout out to court clerks who. Who cares? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Good court clerks care about the public having a- access to records. So shout out to those. That, we appreciate that, the transparency. Truly. But the theme that emerges throughout this criminal history is that Jim Sr. is compl- he's dogged. He is dogged about pursuing his appeals. And oftentimes he winds up acting pro se. Yeah, I went through a federal trial there. Pro se case, I had a fool for a client, but I beat him. I represent myself in quite a few cases, and hell, when I started representing myself, well, I was undefeated. <laughs> and it's an interesting pattern that we're going to see repeated with Jim Jr. later on down the road. That's one of the things I find so interesting about what you have found is, you know, cue the foreshadowing, but we're going to see a lot of pretending to be lawyers and lawyering for yourself on your own behalf and working through the system in ways that like, oh, I got off on a technicality and things like that throughout this whole story. And it doesn't start where we thought it started. Yeah. And it I, starts like 70 years ago. And it, I mean, I'm looking at, at both of these individuals, Jim Sr. and Jim Jr., who both have now at this point pretty extensive criminal histories, but are both getting relief from courts on sentencing in ways that are like unfathomable. Bananas. Like how are they getting relief? But okay, so that chaotic charge for the, the knowingly concealing stolen property in 1979 happens. And then also in 1979, He's charged and convicted by a jury in federal court. This time, it's for the sale of six oil field drill bits with a value of more than $5,000, which were moving in interstate commerce. So you can see, like, you wind up in federal court if you move between states to commit your crime. But in 1980, he's appealing that conviction. And the again, I want to just comment on what the appeal opinion says, because one of the bases for Jim's appeal is that there wasn't any evidence that he knew that the drill bits were stolen. Never mind that they were they did the exchange in a motel parking lot and it was a cash deal and they refused a receipt and the drill bits were worth $15,000 and they sold them for 6. Never mind all of that, okay? That's like circumstantial evidence that maybe you know something is stolen. Sure. But on top of all that, in the opinion of the appellate court, they write 
Defendant Lumen made several statements to the undercover agents during the negotiations indicating that he knew he was dealing in stolen property. These included, A, that he had to be careful because the heat, quote, was watching him, and that he had to be watchful for, quote, snitches. B, that he had recently, quote, lost a backhoe to police authorities, and C, that he also offered to sell other items, such as a $6,500 gooseneck trailer for $2,000. Are you just walking around with some, like, $15,000 oil drill bits for sale? <laughs> like, for just cash? the nature of the items themselves suggests that they were stolen, my friend. <laughs> okay, okay, so continuing, though. In 1987, Jim Sr. is indicted in federal court for, quote, knowingly receiving stolen property. The outcome of that case, it's not clear to me. The documents were unavailable on the federal court website. What we do have, though, is his co-defendant's appeal opinion. And apparently, you know, during the trial, one of the witnesses referenced Jim Sr.'s extensive criminal history. And his attorney moved for mistrial, and he got it. And... Yeah, he got a mistrial. Wait, what? Yeah, he got a mistrial. But federal court cares about the Constitution. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like state court. <laughs> the feds care about the Constitution. Listen. He got retried, though. I don't know if he was found guilty because, again, the case was like the documents were not on PACER. But then, okay, so that's 87. We get to 89, and the hammer finally comes down on Jim Sr., and this is in Tulsa County, and he, he's charged with and tried for, again, knowingly concealing stolen property. And this is the meat case. The infamous meat case. Here's what Jim Sr. says happened. 210 pounds of brisket meat. Right. That had been stolen from the mafia, of all people. Really? I ended up with from that Tony Alamo church group out of Arkansas. So, small side quest for our listeners who don't know anything about the Tony Alamo Christian Ministries that Jim was referencing. I think it's worth just a small little side path. <laughs> like 90 it's seconds very of chaos. Interesting. Let's move to our sickest story of the day. An alleged religious cult leader has been arrested in Flagstaff, Arizona. Tony Alamo is accused of transporting young girls across state lines for sex. Alamo has said in the past, the age of consent for sex is puberty. Let that one sink in for Tony a Alamo ran a church based out of Arkansas that had close ties to Tulsa. His wife, Susan, was also a member of the church and one of the leaders of the church. And she died of breast cancer in 1982. And when that happened, the church believed that she would rise from the dead. So they embalmed her body and kept her on display for six months. That's fucking horrifying. And then she was entombed in a heart-shaped marble mausoleum on church property. It wasn't until the 1990s that the IRS kind of started to catch on to what was going on with Tony Alamo Christian Ministries. He actually created a whole separate entity, which was called Music Square Church. And the IRS actually ultimately concluded that both Music Square Church and Tony Alamo Christian Ministries were run for the sole benefit of Tony Alamo himself. So he had his 501c3 statuses revoked on both of the entities. And he was charged with federal tax evasion. And that's not even the end of it. Where does it go from so there? So then he, I guess, because his primary way of paying his bills has been eliminated from him in the 2009 times, 
He is convicted of 10 counts of transporting minors as young as nine years old across state lines for sex. And a judge granted Alamo a maximum sentence for his crimes of 175 years. He ended up dying in prison in 2017. We're glad about that. (laughs) I said what I said. Also, apparently, get in the mafia meat trade. So while they were running Tony Alamo Christian Ministries, apparently they were buying meat from the mafia. Wait, 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 back up. Can you tell me more about the mafia? Mafia Foods uh-huh. used to be Mapelli Brothers. Mapelli Brothers, Sonny Mapelli was out of, of all places, Des Moines, Iowa. I bought 210 pounds, well, I bought a lot more than that, but I was charged 210 pounds of brisket meat. I bought that from the Tony Alamo Church Group. I don't know if you're familiar with them out of uh, Dyer, Arkansas. Oh, they was big scandal in the 90s. And uh, that, you know, I had, they came in to testify that, you know, they sold it to me. If there's a problem with it, it's our problem. But the uh, jury didn't believe them. You Ooh. know, the church groups that stole the meat, but they were some racketeer. Yeah, so that's what I got 30 for. And on top of that, I got 62 years consecutive. So let me just make sure we all understand. Jim Sr. says he bought 210 pounds of brisket from the Tony Alamo Church, and that's before the sex scandal came crashing down. And the church had stolen that meat from Montfort Foods, which, in fact, the Mapelli Brothers Meat Co. that he's referencing did sell their business to Montfort Foods. So I guess there's, like, an attenuated connection to the mafia here. And that's Jim Sr.'s version, but here's what we could find out by reading the appellate pleadings in the Tenth Circuit. The general facts leading to petitioner's conviction are not in dispute. On December 5th, 1988, 95 boxes of meat were stolen from the Monfort Food Distributing Company in Tulsa. The next day, petitioner rented a refrigerated trailer in Tulsa. Later in December, petitioner traded boxes of meat, which turned out to be some of the meat stolen from Montfort, to Hugh Carraway and Wendell West in return for various items. Full on just a bartering deal. Here's some meat. <laughs> what do you think he got for the meat? Some really cool clothes from Dillard's. One of the guys that he gave, he traded the meat to, took it to a butcher. And the butcher was like suspicious about the meat. He's like, like bro, this is stolen meat. <laughs> Suspicious. I can't tell you how I know, but I just know. I know this, this meat, meat is this meat has heat. It looks stolen. Somehow he knew, and so once he I, he must have alerted the authorities because after they they figured out that Caraway, this guy that took the meat to the butcher, got the meat from Jim Senior, they focused their investigation on him, and so he's found guilty of that, and he's sentenced to thirty years in the, in the State Department of Corrections. And that's in 1989. Okay, and I'm guessing that they used his afterformers, as we say, to enhance his sentence. That's exactly right. So it's 1989. He's going to be in jail for 30 years. To your point, in the 90s, he's in fucking jail. Oh, no. But what he's doing on all those appeals is he's trying to undo his sentences so that he can then go back to state court and say, look, you can't say that this is after former conviction. There's no bases for the afterformers if there's no afterformers. Yep, you got to let me out. So it's like... Truly clever, but, you know, didn't work. That plan failed, but I got to give it to you for points for creativity. I mean, there is nothing that a jailhouse lawyer won't try. <laughs> so he did, he did 17 years on that 30-year sentence and was released in 2007. 
In addition to the criminal charges that we were able to verify through court records and legal pleadings, Jim Sr. also revealed that he engaged in illegal activity in Denver of a specific and disturbing nature. Practicing medicine without license under a Navy's name uh, in Denver, Colorado. But back then, it was just a misdemeanor. And I'm not going to tell you what kind of what uh, medical profession I was in. I, 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 I'd not tell you if it was a man, but I'm not going to tell you. He was away from Jim. Most of his developing years, he was away. And then we know he was away on many of his shorter sentences during Jim's earlier childhood years. So we know that he was pretty much lacking a stable father figure through all of that chaos. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't mean to make light of that because that's, I mean, that's traumatizing for a kid to lose a parent to the penal system. Yes. I just, it's just like stunning the, I mean, he was a career criminal. So upon, upon release in 2007, it sort of seems like I can't find any criminal activity after that. It sort of seems like he aged out and, Retired to Kansas City, Missouri. Interesting. And then never commits a crime again. He turned himself around. Well, I looked. Believe me, I scoured the surrounding states, and I, I found no crimes by Jim Lumen Sr. Hmm. Well, good job, sir. I mean, for turning your life around after you got out. Yeah. But imagine growing up in such a chaotic house where all of that was going on. But we know that Jim's mom, Patsy, has been his longest standing stable relationship that he's had in his whole life. And Patsy and Jim and his sister grew up in a very small house in, you know, one of the side streets in Cleveland. And Patsy for a time owned a retail store called Purple Rain. Here's Kristen again. His mom, Patsy, did own, or I believe she owned, a clothing store for a little while in Cleveland called Purple Rain. And I recall them having like uh, things like guest jeans, like some ma- labeled clothes or whatever. I remember he always, you know, dressed in those types of clothes too. It was kind of, um, he kind of stuck out a little bit for Cleveland. We tried to contact Pat. This is Pat. Please leave a message. Hi, Pat. My name's Leslie. But she didn't answer and didn't call back. We have some notes from Ember that indicate that Jim made comments about seeing his dad abuse his mom. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting thing that Ember told us, just that, you know, part of the cycle of this whole, you know, Jim's kind of method, flowers and an apology. You know, Ember kind of indicated to us that there was a moment where Pat was visiting and Jim had recently given Ember flowers. And, you know, she had made some comments to Jim that were like chastising in nature of like, you know, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and Ember just remembers it as like, it, it seemed like something that Pat had lived herself flowers after an abusive incident yeah it was like she saw the flowers and she immediately knew that something had happened which isn't normal people's response to seeing fresh flowers in the house sure yeah and ember to this day she told us she doesn't like to receive flowers because of her relationship with jim both Kristen and heather two of the survivors of jim lumen who you'll get to know throughout this season told us that jim shared stories of abuse between his mom and dad when he was growing up. 
Jim said that uh, he watched his mother be abused, that he watched his dad kick his mom at some point. He's told me that his dad was abusive to her in the past. Jim Sr. himself denies that he ever laid hands on Patsy. He called me a, an abuser, a, a domestic abuser. And I said, what? I've been married one time. Here's her number. You can call her. Ask her if you want a list of how many hundreds do you want. And I said, I guarantee you that any of them would open their door to me right now. Mm -hmm. I, am ne I have never... Now, women's not made to be done. I do not, uh, I do not agree with that at all. In fact, I believe in putting them on the pedestal. So it is important to note that Patsy has consistently denied that Jim has ever done anything wrong. His mom defends him to the, to the, to the, well, probably to the death, but she defends Jim. She absolutely believes that he's innocent of everything, at least, at least when I spoke to her. That was Josh Kidd. Josh was a former business partner and attorney for Jim. He knew Jim and Pat when he was in practice here in Oklahoma. And then we come to Jim's older sister, Kathleen, or as she's also known, Kathy. Kathy was much older than Jim, as we said, about 12 years older, and she went on to become a lawyer. She was, by all accounts that we've heard, a great lawyer. She had her own practice. Jim is not a lawyer, but he's been around lawyers his whole life because of his sister. So something with Kathy that's really kind of pivotal and important is and tragic, honestly, is that she lost her life to suicide in 2006. And it's a really defining and tragic moment for this family. It was horrible on all of them. And I actually didn't find out about it till five or six days later. And I was talking with him and um, he... He, he doesn't handle it, handle it well at all. Um, it had a very, very big impact on him emotionally because his sister was just old enough, enough older than he was that she was kind of like a second mom without being that old. That was Shannon. She's been friends with Jim for more than 20 years, and she knew him well when Kathy died by suicide in 2006. I mean, after what we've just heard from their family history, coming from that little house in Cleveland to being an attorney, marrying a successful chiropractor, having beautiful children, I think she was kind of like prized by Patsy and the rest of the family. It's like, look, this is our success story. Yeah, I mean, think about that house is apparently like 800 square feet where they grew up. And dad was in and out of jail. Yeah. Mom is like running a retail shop to make ends meet. And she goes on to become a successful lawyer with her own business and a, a beautiful family. And it's like a huge, I mean, it's a tragedy that her life ended the way it did. It really was. And the reason that I feel strongly about what happened with her and how sad it is is because we have we did find this protective order that her then estranged husband filed a year before she took her own life. It's important for the listeners to get the context of what was happening in Kathy's life because from the outside looking in, if you're just a regular person in Cleveland, Kathy had it all. Yeah. Beautiful home, beautiful family. And in 2006, like mental health wasn't what it is now. We aren't going to read the protective order into this episode, but there is one line that sticks out that I think everyone should hear. It says, My wife has a history of mental illness. 
just think that's just so fucking tragic. Yeah. It really is because I think people think if you get a good job and you make a lot of money that you escape the generational and mental trauma that comes with growing up in poverty and growing up in abuse. And it just doesn't. It just doesn't. And sometimes it makes it even worse. And the other thing about Kathleen, too, that we haven't talked about yet is that she and Jim were running a business together in addition to her law practice. Because Jim eventually goes to college and gets a degree in mortuary science. They were running the Cleveland funeral home. And he's made comments to some of the women that he's been involved with about embalming his own sister's body. Uh, He told me that he um, prepared his sister's body for the funeral. And then he wanted to show me where his, his dead sister lived. But before he showed me his dead sis- where his dead sister lived, he wanted to show me his dead sister's grave. So we went to the cemetery to see his dead sister's grave, where he explained to her, me that she was, a, uh, she was an attorney. They had a business together. They had a uh, funeral home together. And she killed herself. And he ended up having to, he ended up having to get her body, embalm her body, and prepare her funeral, and do all the funeral arrangements by himself. Colleen and I actually paid a visit to Kathy's grave. We felt that it was necessary because Jim took a number of the women to visit this headstone and told them that he wrote the epitaph himself. Uh, It says, all the pain and grief are over, every restless tossing past. I am now at peace forever. I am safely home at last. He kind of prides himself on having been the one to write the headstone, from what we understand. I don't know what to make of that, really. I don't know. It's unusual, and it's unusual that he's taking credit for having written it. And so this is his family environment. This is where he comes from, and these are the people who he grew up with and the people who probably know him best. And I think it's pretty apparent Kathy was important to him, and that's obvious. We don't know whether he was fixated on her in some way or if this was a sibling rivalry kind of a thing or we don't know, right? But the one thing we do know is that the most constant thing in Jim's life is chaos. Once we get past you know his childhood and the chaos of his father in and out of prison and all of that, it becomes a chaos that he creates himself and he forces upon other people. That's my opinion. Yeah, I think... I'm not excusing the behavior. I'm trying to explain the behavior, which is sort of like what I do. Doesn't mean that the behavior harming other people is okay. But childhood trauma truly injures and shapes someone's brain in ways that cause very problematic behaviors. Do you truly think that someone growing up in a town like this with 2,000 people, with women making $19,000, and that's adjusted for inflation like back then, probably $12,000 a year, that kind of poverty, that kind of systemic inequity happening in a community, and then you have a parent figure who's in and out of prison... It's just that that level of instability and we I would not expect this person to grow up to be a really healthy and like proactive member of society. But at the same time, him and about a million other people in Oklahoma had that upbringing. Yeah. And not all of them are committing atrocious crimes. Heinous. Heinous Every six to eight months. Right. 
Some of them are, but not all of them. And so it does bring up this question of like, some people's brains are better at processing stress and healing from trauma and can heal from trauma faster. And they get put into environments where their relationships are truly healthy and they heal from the things that happen to them. And other people take the things that happen to them as children and they act those out on everybody in their life yeah. as they try to heal mm. what happened to them. And it just gets worse and worse and worse mm. until something actually intervenes and stops the behavior. It what, could be... Yeah, what works? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it could be a positive thing that could happen, like therapy, getting EMDR, uh, going into a like sensory deprivation tank, and like your body's actually allowed to process and heal the trauma that happens to you. It's different for everybody, I think, but like, but it also could be a negative thing, like going to prison, right, for a really long time. If we took every person who committed systemic domestic violence over and over and over again, and we put them in prison for life, our economy would be debilitated. We would not be able to run a country because it's so common. Because it's so many people, so well, many breadwinners. That's why we don't do it. That's why we don't do it. Capitalism did this fucking again. <laughs> God damn it. Hashtag blame capitalism. Not really. I just. I mean, but it all plays it. It all comes. It, it is all part of the same system. We don't care about having consequences for actions against women. Like we don't really care about women's safety and ability to live a safe life. We don't believe women either when they say they're unsafe. Like, because that, even just, like, considering that that might be the case is too much work. Let alone solving the fact that we're unsafe. I mean, like, I just... Yeah. I could talk about this until... Four mid- in the morning. So, yeah, and then I'll be just sad. No, I mean, that that's the thing is, it's like, we care more about putting someone away for life over a victimless crime, like drugs... Yep. ...than putting someone away for any amount of time for actual physical violence against a woman. Yep. And I was saying this to you two nights ago and you were like, stop talking. We have to put this on the pod. But the idea (laughs) that I could be in a bar and I could smash somebody over the head with a bottle and get probably a 15 year sentence in Oklahoma because I hit someone that I didn't know. And then that I could go home into my house and do the exact same thing against my partner and get no time. 30 because days. Because that person lives with me and loves me. Right. That these is cases, so fucking Because these weird. cases are, quote, complicated. And they are. And we're going to see how complicated yeah, they are this season. For fucking real complicated.
Cleveland, Oklahoma seems like any other small town in America. But we know it's produced two prolific criminals. One proven to be much more violent than his father in a court of law. As we move through this season, I think you'll see that Jim is using these women to reach back in time, trying to find those good old days that Gary told us about earlier in this episode. Driving Boston Fuller Road, drinking, and listening to red dirt music. Instead, he winds up leaving a bloody trail of destruction of women who loved him, or, at the very least, trusted him. If we know anything at this point, it's that Cleveland, Oklahoma is a place where idle hands find trouble. But it's up to each individual whether that trouble will be good or bad for the rest of the community. Next time on Panic Button, Operation Wildfire. All little boys grow up eventually, but what kind of man leave a trail of more than a dozen known victims and yet only spend a few months in prison over a period of decades of abuse? It turns out this particular man is often described as fascinating to talk to and exceedingly charismatic, but underneath that charisma is something much more sinister. You can find links to pictures, documents, and all our sources in the show notes of this episode. These cases serve as a reminder of the devastating consequences of domestic violence and the importance of seeking help if you or someone you know is a victim. If you are in immediate danger, please call 911 or your local emergency number. For confidential support and resources, you can reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Thank you for listening to Panic Button, Operation Wildfire, and for joining us in shedding light on the importance of ending domestic violence for good. I'm Colleen McCarty. And I'm Leslie Briggs. Panic Button is a production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studios in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Our theme music is by Guillaume. Additional editing is provided by The Wave Podcasting. Our music supervisor is Rusty Rowe. Special thanks to our interns, Kat and Allison. To learn more about Oklahoma Appleseed or donate to keep our mission of fighting for the rights and opportunities of every Oklahoman a reality, go to okappleseed.org. 